Welcome to Nightfall Narratives, the podcast that goes where shadows and stories intersect to explore the eerie and enigmatic. Join us as we journey into the heart of the unknown, immersing ourselves in tales of suspense and terror. In each episode, we'll either read a spine-tingling tale, or we'll take a closer look at the art of writing, unraveling the mysteries of storycraft that make such tales so eerily effective. So, sit back, relax, and feel the embrace of the mysterious as we embark on this journey into the heart of the night. Welcome to another episode of Nightfall Narratives. I'm your Nightfall narrator, R. Douglas Patton. In this episode, we'll continue reading chapters 7 and 8 of the classic tale The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Be sure also, of course, to stick around for the follow-up episode, as we will discuss the archetypes of climactic confrontation and also unseen and unknowable evil as they pertain to this story. And we'll also, of course, as always, explore how you can implement these archetypes in your own stories. So, without any further fanfare, Nightfall Narratives presents The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 7 Yet all this was only the prologue of the actual Dunwich Horror. Formalities were gone through by bewildered officials, abnormal details were duly kept from press and public, and men were sent to Dunwich and Aylesbury to look up property and notify any who might be heirs of the late Wilbur Watley. They found the countryside in great agitation, both because of the growing rumblings beneath the domed hills and because of the unwanted stench and the surging, lapping sounds which came increasingly from the great empty shell formed by Watley's boarded-up farmhouse. Earl Sawyer, who tended the horse and cattle during Wilbur's absence, had developed a woefully acute case of nerves. The officials devised excuses not to enter the noisome boarded place, and were glad to confine their survey of the deceased's living quarters, the newly mended sheds, to a single visit. They filed a ponderous report at the courthouse in Aylesbury, and litigations concerning airship are said to be still in progress amongst the innumerable Watleys, decayed and undecayed, of the upper Miskatonic Valley. An almost interminable manuscript in strange characters, written in a huge ledger and adjudged a sort of diary because of the spacing and the variations in ink and penmanship, presented a baffling puzzle to those who found it on the old bureau which served as its owner's desk. After a week of debate, it was sent to Miskatonic University, together with the deceased's collection of strange books, for study and possible translation. But even the best linguists soon saw that it was not likely to be unriddled with ease. No trace of the ancient gold with which Wilbur and Old Watley always paid their debts has yet to be discovered. It was in the dark of September 9th that the horror broke loose. The hill noises had been very pronounced during the evening, and the dogs barked frantically all night. Early risers on the 10th noticed a peculiar stench in the air. About 7 o'clock, Luther Brown, the hired boy at George Corey's between Cold Spring Glen and the village, rushed frenziedly back from his morning trip to Ten Acre Meadow with the cows. He was almost convulsed with fright as he stumbled into the kitchen, and in the yard outside, the no less frightened herd were pawing and lowing pitifully, 
having followed the boy back in the panic they shared with him. Between gasps, Luther tried to stammer out his tale to Mrs. Corey. Up there, in the rud beyond the glen, Miss Corey, there's something been there. It smells like thunder, and all the bushes and little trees is pushed back from the rud like they'd a house been moved along of it. And that ain't the worst, nother. They's prints in the rud, Miss Corey. Great round prints, as big as barrel heads, all sunk down deep like a elephant had been along. Only they's a sight more nor four feet could make. I looked at one or two or four I run, and I see every one was covered with lines spreading out from one place, like as if a big palm leaf fans, twice or three times as big as any they is. Head been pounded down in the rod, and the smell was awful, like what it is around Wizard Watley's old house. Here he faltered, and seemed to shiver afresh with the fright that had sent him flying home. Mrs. Corey, unable to extract more information, began telephoning the neighbors, thus starting its rounds the overture of panic that heralded the major terrors. When she got Sally Sawyer, housekeeper at Seth Bishop's, the nearest place to Watley's, it became her turn to listen instead of transmit, for Sally's boy, Chauncey, who slept poorly, had been up on the hill toward Watley's, and had dashed back in terror after one look at the place and the pasturage where Mr. Bishop's cows had been left out all night. "'Yes, Miss Corey,' came Sally's tremulous voice over the party wire. "'Chancy, he just come back a-postin', and couldn't half talk for bein' scared. He says old Watley's house is all blowed up, with the timbers scattered round like they'd been dynamite inside, only the bottom floor ain't through, but is all covered with a kind of tar-like stuff that smells awful and drips down often the edges onto the ground where the side timbers is blowed away.' And these awful kinder marks in the yard, too. Great round marks, bigger round than a hogshead, and all sticky with stuff like is on the blowed-up house. Chancy, he says, they leads off in the meadows, where a great swath wide in a barn is matted down, and all the stun walls tumbled every which way, wherever it goes. And, he says, says he, Miss Corey, is how he sought to look for Seth's cows, Frightened as he was, and found him in the upper pasture nigh the devil's hopyard, in an awful shape, half on him's clean gone, and nigh half of them that's left is sucked most dry of blood, with sores on him, like they's been on Watley's cattle ever since Lavinie's black brat was born. Seth, he's gone out now to look at him, though I'll vow he won't cure to get very nigh Wizard Watley's. Chancy didn't look careful to see where the big matted down swath led Arthur left the pasturage, but he says he thinks it pinted towards the Glen Rudd to the village. I tell ye, Miss Corey, they's something abroad as hadn't orter be abroad, and I for one think that Black Wilbur Watley, as come to the bad end he deserved, is at the bottom of the breeding of it. He want all human hisself, I allus say to everybody. And I think he and old Watley must a raised something in that there nailed-up house, as ain't even so human as he was. They's allus been unseen things around Dunwich, living things, as ain't human, as ain't good for human folks. The ground was a-talkin' last night, and towards morning Chauncey he heard the whippoorwills so loud in Cold Spring Glen, he couldn't sleep none. 
Then he thought he heard another faint-like sound over toward Wizard Watley's, a kinder ripping or tearing a wood like some big box or crate was being opened for off. What with this and that, he didn't get to sleep at all to sunup, and no sooner was he up this morning than he's got to go over to Watley's and see what's the matter. He see enough. I tell ye, Miss Corey, this don't mean no good, and I think as all the men folk ought to get up a party and do something. I know something awful's about, and I feel my time is nigh, though only God knows just what it is. Did your Luther take account of where them big trucks led to? No? Well, Miss Corey, if they was on the Glen Rudd this side of the Glen and ain't got to your house yet, I calculate they must go into the Glen itself. They would do that. I allus says Cold Spring Glen ain't no healthy nor decent place. The whippoorwills and fireflies, they never did act like they was creatures, O oh God. And they's them as says ye can hear strange things a rushing and a talking in the air down there if ye stand in the right place atween the rock falls and bears den. By that noon, fully three-quarters of the men and boys of Dunwich were trooping over the roads and meadows between the new-made Watley ruins and Cold Spring Glen, examining in horror the vast, monstrous prince, the maimed bishop cattle, the strange, noisome wreck of the farmhouse, and the bruised, matted vegetation on the fields and roadsides. Whatever had burst loose upon the world had assuredly gone down into the great sinister ravine, for all the trees on the banks were bent and broken, and a great avenue had been gouged in the precipice hanging underbrush. It was as though a house, launched by an avalanche, had slid down through the tangled growths of the almost vertical slope. From below no sound came, but only a distant, undefinable fetter, and it is not to be wondered at that the men preferred to stay on the edge and argue, rather than descend and beard the unknown Cyclopean horror in its lair. Three dogs that were with the party had barked furiously at first, but seemed cowed and reluctant when near the glen. Someone telephoned the news to the Aylesbury transcript, but the editor, accustomed to wild tales from Dunwich, did no more than concoct a humorous paragraph about it, an item soon afterward reproduced by the Associated Press. That night, everyone went home and every house and barn was barricaded as stoutly as possible, Needless to say, no cattle were allowed to remain in open pasturage. About two in the morning, a frightful stench and the savage barking of the dogs awakened the household at Elmer Fry's on the eastern edge of Cold Spring Glen, and all agreed that they could hear a sort of muffled swishing or lapping sound from somewhere outside. Mrs. Fry proposed telephoning the neighbors, and Elmer was about to agree when the noise of splintering wood burst in upon their deliberations. It came, apparently, from the barn, and was quickly followed by a hideous screaming and stampeding amongst the cattle. The dogs slavered and crouched close to the feet of the fear-numbed family. Fry lit a lantern through force of habit, but knew it would be death to go out into that black farmyard. The children and the womenfolk whimpered, kept from screaming by some obscure vestigial instinct of defense which told them their lives depended on silence. At last the noise of the cattle subsided to a pitiful moaning, and a great snapping, crashing, and crackling ensued. The fries, huddled together in the sitting room, 
did not dare to move until the last echoes died away far down in Cold Spring Glen. Then, amidst the dismal moans from the stable and the demoniac piping of the late whippoorwills in the glen, Selina Fry tottered to the telephone and spread what news she could of the second phase of the horror. The next day, all the countryside was in a panic and cowed. Uncommunicative groups came and went where the fiendish thing had occurred. Two titan swaths of destruction stretched from the glen to the Fry farmyard, Monstrous prints covered the bare patches of ground, and one side of the old red barn had completely caved in. Of the cattle, only about a quarter could be found and identified. Some of these were in curious fragments, and all that survived had to be shot. Earl Sawyer suggested that help be asked from Aylesbury or Arkham, but others maintained it would be of no use. Old Zebulon Watley, of a branch that hovered about halfway between soundness and decadence, made darkly wild suggestions about rites that ought to be practiced on the hilltops. He came of a line where tradition ran strong, and his memories of chanting in the great stone circles were not altogether connected with Wilbur and his grandfather. Darkness fell upon a stricken countryside, too passive to organize for real defense. In a few cases, closely related families would band together and watch in the gloom under one roof. But, in general, there was only a repetition of the barricading of the night before, and a futile, ineffective gesture of loading muskets and setting pitchforks handily about. Nothing, however, occurred except some hill noises, and when the day came, there were many who hoped that the new horror had gone as swiftly as it had come. There were even bold souls who proposed an offensive expedition down in the glen, though they did not venture to set an actual example to the still reluctant majority. When night came again, the barricading was repeated, though there was less huddling together of families. In the morning, both Fry and the Seth Bishop households reported excitement among the dogs and vague sounds and stenches from afar while early explorers noted with horror a fresh set of the monstrous tracks in the road skirting Sentinel Hill. As before, the sides of the road showed a bruising indicative of the blasphemously stupendous bulk of the horror, whilst the confirmation of the tracks seemed to argue a passage in two directions, as if the moving mountain had come from Cold Spring Glen and returned to it along the same path. At the base of the hill, a thirty-foot swath of crushed shrubbery and saplings led steeply upward, and the seekers gasped when they saw that even the most perpendicular places did not deflect the inexorable trail. Whatever the horror was, it could scale a sheer stony cliff of almost complete verticality, and as the investigators climbed around to the hill's summit by safer routes, they saw that the trail ended, or rather, reversed, there. It was here that the Watleys used to build their hellish fires and chant their hellish rituals by the table-like stone on May Eve and Hallowmass. Now that very stone formed the center of a vast space, thrashed around by the mountainous horror, whilst upon its slightly concave surface was a thick-fetid deposit of the same tarry stickiness observed on the floor of the ruined Watley farmhouse when the horror escaped. Men looked at one another and muttered, then they looked down the hill. Apparently the horror had descended by a route much the same as that of its ascent. To speculate was futile. Reason, logic, and normal ideas of motivation stood confounded. 
only old Zebulun, who was not with the group, could have done justice to the situation or suggested a plausible explanation. Thursday night began much like the others, but it ended less happily. The whippoorwills in the glen had screamed with such unusual persistence that many could not sleep, and about 3 a.m. all the party telephones rang tremulously. Those who took down their receivers heard a fright-mad voice shriek out, Help! Oh, my God! And some thought a crashing sound followed the breaking off of the exclamation. There was nothing more. No one dared do anything, and no one knew till morning whence the call came. Then those who had heard it called everyone on the line, and found that only the fries did not reply. The truth appeared an hour later, when a hastily assembled group of armed men trudged out to the fry place at the head of the glen. It was horrible, yet hardly a surprise. There were more swaths and monstrous prints, but there was no longer any farmhouse. It had caved in like an eggshell, and amongst the ruins nothing living or dead could be discovered, only a stench and a tarry stickiness. The Elmer Fries had been erased from Dunwich. Chapter 8 In the meantime, a quieter yet even more spiritually poignant phase of the horror had been blackly unwinding itself behind the closed door of a shelf-lined room in Arkham. The curious manuscript record, or diary, of Wilbur Watley, delivered to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in languages both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet, notwithstanding a general resemblance to the heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia, being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguists was that the text represented an artificial alphabet giving the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual methods of cryptographic solution seemed to furnish any clue. Even when applied on the basis of every tongue, the writer might conceivably have used. The ancient books taken from Watley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting and in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science, were of no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp was in another unknown alphabet, this one of a very different caste and resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. The old ledger was at length given wholly into the charge of Dr. Armitage, both because of his peculiar interest in the Watley matter and because of his wide linguistic learning and skill in the mystical formulae of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Armitage had an idea that the alphabet might be something esoterically used by certain forbidden cults which have come down from old times, and which have inherited many forms and traditions from the wizards of the Saracenic world. That question, however, he did not deem vital, since it would be unnecessary to know the origin of the symbols if, as he suspected, they were used as a cipher in a modern language. It was his belief, considering the great amount of text involved, that the writer would scarcely have wished the trouble of using another speech than his own, save perhaps in certain special formulae and incantations. Accordingly, he attacked the manuscript with the preliminary assumption that the bulk of it was in English. Dr. Armitage knew, from the repeated failures of his colleagues, that the riddle was a deep and complex one and that no simple mode of solution could merit even a trial. 
all through late August, he fortified himself with the massed lore of cryptography, drawing upon the fullest resources of his own library, and waiting night after night midst the arcana of Trimetheus's Polygraphia, Giambattista Porta's De Fortivis Literarum Notis, De Vigenier's Chete de Chiffre, Falconer's Cryptomensis Patefacta, Davies and Thickness's 18th century treatises, and such fairly modern authorities as Blair, von Martin, and Kluber's Cryptographic. He interspersed his study of the books with attacks on the manuscript itself, and in time became convinced that he had to deal with one of those subtlest and most ingenious of cryptograms, in which many separate lists of corresponding letters are arranged like the multiplication table and the message built up with arbitrary keywords known only to the initiated. The older authorities seemed rather more helpful than the newer ones, and Armitage concluded that the code of the manuscript was one of great antiquity, no doubt handed down through a long line of mystical experimenters. Several times he seemed near daylight, only to be set back by some unforeseen obstacle. Then, as September approached, the clouds began to clear. Certain letters, as used in certain parts of the manuscript, emerged definitely and unmistakably, and it became obvious that the text was indeed in English. On the evening of September 2nd, the last major barrier gave way, and Dr. Armitage read for the first time a continuous passage of Wilbur Watley's Annals. It was in truth a diary, as all had thought, and it was couched in a style clearly showing the mixed occult erudition and general illiteracy of the strange being who wrote it. Almost the first long passage that Armitage deciphered, an entry dated November 26, 1916, proved highly startling and disquieting. It was written, he remembered, by a child of three and a half, who looked like a lad of twelve or thirteen. Today, learned the Aklo for the Sabaoth, it ran, which did not like, it being answerable from the hill and not from the air, that upstairs more ahead of me than I had thought it would be, and is not like me to have much earth brain. Shot Elam Hutchinson's collie Jack when he went to bite me, and Elam says he would kill me if he dast. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the dough formula last night, and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when the earth is cleared off, if I can't break through with the Dohna formula when I commit it. They from the air told me at Sabbat that it would be years before I could clear off the earth, and I guess Grandfather will be dead by then, so I shall have to learn all the angles of the planes and all the formulas between the year and the near. They from outside will help, but they cannot take body without human blood. That upstairs looks it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make the Yurish sign or blow the power of Ibn Ghazi at it. And it is near like them at May Eve on the hill. The other face may wear off some. I wonder how I shall look when the earth is cleared and there are no earth beings on it. He that came with the Aklo Sabaot said I may be transfigured, there being much of outside to work on. Morning found Dr. Armitage in a cold sweat of terror and a frenzy of wakeful concentration. He had not left the manuscript all night, 
but sat at his table under the electric lights turning page after page with shaking hands as fast as he could decipher the cryptic text. He had nervously telephoned his wife he would not be home, and when she brought him a breakfast from the house, he could scarcely dispose of a mouthful. All that day he read on, now and then halted maddeningly as a reapplication of the complex key became necessary. Lunch and dinner were brought him, but he ate only the smallest fraction of either. Toward the middle of the next night, he drowsed off in his chair, but soon woke out of a tangle of nightmares almost as hideous as the truths and menaces to man's existence that he had uncovered. On the morning of September 4th, Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan insisted on seeing him for a while, and departed trembling and ashen gray. That evening he went to bed, but slept only fitfully. Wednesday, the next day, he was back at the manuscript, and began to take copious notes both from the current sections and from those he had already deciphered. In the small hours of that night, he slept a little in an easy chair in his office, but was at the manuscript again before dawn. Some time before noon, his physician, Dr. Hartwell, called to see him and insisted that he cease work. He refused, intimating that it was of the most vital importance for him to complete the reading of the diary, and promising an explanation in due course of time. That evening, just as twilight fell, he finished his terrible perusal and sank back exhausted. His wife, bringing his dinner, found him in a half-comatose state, but he was conscious enough to warn her off with a sharp cry when he saw her eyes wander toward the notes he had taken. Weakly rising, he gathered up the scribbled papers and sealed them all in a great envelope, which he immediately placed in his inside coat pocket. He had sufficient strength to get home, but was so clearly in need of medical aid that Dr. Hartwell was summoned at once. As the doctor put him to bed, he could only mutter over and over again, but what in God's name can we do? Dr. Armitage slept, but was partly delirious the next day. He made no explanations to Hartwell, but in his calmer moments spoke of the imperative need of a long conference with Rice and Morgan. His wilder wanderings were very startling indeed, including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. He would shout that the world was in danger, since the elder things wished to strip it and drag it away from the solar system and cosmos of matter into some other plane or phase of entity from which it had once fallen vigintillions of eons ago. At other times, he would call for the dreaded Necronomicon and the Daemonolatreia of Remigius, in which he seemed hopeful of finding some formula to check the peril he conjured up. Stop them! Stop them! he would shout. Those Watleys meant to let them in, and the worst of it all is left. Tell Rice and Morgan we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August when Wilbur came here to his death, and at that rate. But Armitage had a sound physique despite his seventy-three years, and slept off his disorder that night without developing any real fever. He woke late Friday, clear of head, though sober, 
with a gnawing fear and tremendous sense of responsibility. Saturday afternoon, he felt able to go over to the library and summon Rice and Morgan for a conference, and the rest of that day and evening, the three men tortured their brains in the wildest speculation and the most desperate debate. Strange and terrible books were drawn voluminously from the stack shelves and from the secure places of storage, and diagrams and formulae were copied with feverish haste in bewildering abundance. Of skepticism there was none. All three had seen the body of Wilbur Watley as it lay on the floor in a room of that very building, and after that not one of them could feel even slightly inclined to treat the diary as a madman's raving. Opinions were divided as to notifying the Massachusetts State Police, and the negative finally won. There were things involved which simply could not be believed by those who had not seen a sample, as indeed was made clear during certain subsequent investigations. Late at night, the conference disbanded without having developed a definite plan, but all day Sunday, Armitage was busy comparing formulae and mixing chemicals obtained from the college laboratory. The more he reflected on the hellish diary, the more he was inclined to doubt the efficacy of any material agent in stamping out the entity which Wilbur Watley had left behind him, the earth-threatening entity which, unknown to him, was to burst forth in a few hours and become the memorable Dunwich Horror. Monday was a repetition of Sunday with Dr. Armitage, for the task in hand required an infinity of research and experiment. Further consultations of the monstrous diary brought about various changes of plan, and he knew that even in the end, a large amount of uncertainty must remain. By Tuesday, he had a definite line of action mapped out, and believed he would try a trip to Dunwich within a week. Then, on Wednesday, the great shock came. Tucked obscurely away in a corner of the Arkham Advertiser was a facetious little item from the Associated Press telling what a record-breaking monster the bootleg whiskey of Dunwich had raised up. Armitage, half-stunned, could only telephone for Rice and Morgan. Far into the night they discussed, and the next day was a whirlwind of preparation on the part of them all. Armitage knew he would be meddling with terrible powers, yet saw that there was no other way to annul the deeper and more malign meddling which others had done before him. As the shadows lengthen and the night falls, we come to the end of another episode of Nightfall Narratives. We hope you found our exploration of dark and mysterious storytelling and the art of writing thought-provoking and haunting. Remember, the stories we tell have the power to both chill us to the bone and inspire us to create our own. Join us again for our next episode, and until then, keep your eyes open and your mind curious, for anything is possible. <laughs>